Amen. Thanks, Megan. Thank you, Pastor Carl. You know, we didn't even get our sound check. How is it sounding out there? <laughs> okay, all right, good. Pardon me, I just want to uh, set the timer so I can ignore it. No, I didn't mean that. Uh, just want to make sure I know exactly what I'm doing here. Whoop, not that one. Okay. And I just want to say a huge thank you to all of you. You know, I've been around the covenant long enough that I actually remember when Centennial Covenant was planted. That's kind of a scary thought since I know it was a long, long time ago. And I'm so grateful to be here also uh, to renew with friends. Uh, we've known Steve and Darlene for many years. We've uh, fellowshiped together at Midwinters. Uh, but I go back even further with Jill Meyer. I think about 1976, I figured out, and with Myrna Beblavi uh, to about 1969 or 70. So that either makes me really old or really blessed with some wonderful relationships. And uh, Scott and I are just so grateful for these relationships, and I admire so much each of you who I have mentioned and your ministries in the church. And I love that you guys uh, are doing this. You've been talking, Pastor Carl's been leading you through this series on character formation. I think that's so wonderful because uh, there's a painful lack of character in our world these days. And when I think about it, I want to look back on my life and have it be characterized by faith, hope, and love. And I think you are developing character in order to look back on your lives and to leave a mark, right? So I did my homework on you guys. I know that you're working on leaving a mark. And so this fits in perfectly with Chosen Sunday because we're going to call you all to leave a mark on the lives of some wonderful children in the city of Gemina in the Democratic Republic of Congo. So I want to say thank you. Thank you so much. Centennial Covenant for jumping in on Chosen Sunday. This is like another thing that we do as a church, and obviously you guys have a lot going on, so I am grateful that you're doing this and that this means so much, especially to children in Congo, and we will get to that in a bit. And I'm eager to tell you about the big dreams that people at World Vision have been dreaming for Covenant Kids Congo and for the kids in Gemina. And I know Pastor shared a little bit of that with you last week because he talked about the Matthew 25 challenge. Now, I'm wondering if I could see the hands of people who actually did at least a part of the Matthew 25 challenge. Okay, yay for you. Good for you guys. Uh, you know, it's not too late. The rest of you want to jump in and put yourselves in places of discomfort and uncomfortableness through Matthew 25. I would really, oh, I didn't see the people at home who raised their hand. Okay. So I, I want to encourage you to take on the Matthew 25 challenge because you know what? If there's anything I've learned in my journey through faith with Jesus, it's when I allow myself to be put in places of uncomfortableness, places where I don't know really what's going to happen or how it's going to go or I'm not going to have the things or the comforts or whatever it is that I want. That's when I give God space to work in my life. That's when I learn and I grow. So I want to encourage you all and thank you. Thank you to those of you who did the Matthew 25 challenge. Well, I've got a lot to share with you this morning, so I'm going to zip through it and hopefully Beth can hang in with me. You're so blessed to have this wonderful ministry also. And I know for those of you watching at home, you're watching carefully and I'll try not to talk 
too fast. Uh, but Scott and I found our way into the Covenant right here on the Front Range of Denver, which is really exciting to be back here with you, although we've been back many times. We came to Denver for him to attend Denver Seminary ages ago when it was still called Conservative Baptist, and as he used to say, it's not as bad as it sounds. Sorry. Uh, those of you who are former Conservative Baptists, of course, here you are. So... Um, <laughs> And in a biblically epic moment, a voice called down from the roof of the seminary building and said, hey, Scott, do you have an internship lined up? And he said, well, yeah. And he said, and the guy on the roof said, but is it one that pays? And he said, well, no. And he said, well, there's some church up in Arvada. They're looking for somebody to do some counseling. And Scott said, oh, great. And he went to the guy's car, picked up the phone number, Orville Sustad, 422-1235. He called him. And I, it's so trite and trivial to say the rest is history. But truly, the rest kind of is history. Because, of course, they were looking for someone to do some counseling to help out with the pastoral load. And at age 25, with no children and about two years of marriage under his belt, of course my husband was the guy to dispense all those buckets of wisdom and counsel. And he took the job. He took the job believing that the church needed him to do this. But friends, in one of God's great reversals, we learned that we needed that church. We took the job for him because we thought they needed us, but we turned, turned out that we needed them. Scott was hired to help, but the church ended up helping us. And I want to say they just loved us into ministry. They encouraged us at every turn. They formed and even shaped both of our calls to ministry. At the time, I was on staff with Youth for Christ Urban, and they picked up some of my support. And when it was time to face that inevitable, awful move back to Chicago, which a lot of Coloradoans went into mourning for us when we said we had to move back to Chicago. But when we moved back to Chicago, not only did they send us on our way with blessing and love and kindness, they footed the bill for about a year and a half of seminary as well. And so here we are, more than 40 years later, it's amazing. See, when we act with love in the lives of others, it does leave a mark indeed. Yeah, we thought the church needed us, and surely it turned out that we needed them. And I'm going to frame this in terms of it being a radical reversal, a great reversal in our lives. And we're going to talk about Jesus who brings about radical reversals. See, when we made that decision to jump into that church, to jump into the covenant, to jump into pastoral ministry as a team, albeit in a very traditional sense, this one seemingly simple, we thought, short-term decision, because we did not grow up in the covenant or in a covenant background, this one little decision to jump on board with a particular church changed everything. That one small move changed everything, everything for our family, for our careers, for our kids. And in the ensuing years since then, we've served not only that church in Denver, in Arvada, but also in Kansas City, then to Boston, then 17 years in Tucson, Arizona, and then back to Chicagoland for 10 years, and now happily retired 
but still engaged. That, that might be wording that would work for you, Peter and Ruthie, I'm not sure. We have learned so much and grown so much and benefited so much from our engagement with the covenant, our engagement with the churches on the front range, and now it's spreading to the generations. In fact, you guys, we have a daughter who's an ordained covenant pastor. We have a daughter-in-law who's an ordained covenant pastor. Oh, and I may not be able to say this without breaking up a little bit this morning. Our youngest son is being called as director of worship at the church we just retired from. So it's a little bit of a crazy full circle moment. And you know what? I know that you, Centennial Covenant, are seeking to do the same thing through your seminary internship program. And to you, I say kudos and hooray. You are shaping the calls. You are affirming life business for these seminary interns that you have here. Give them your all. Give them your best. Way to go, Centennial Covenant. See, God brings things full circle when we make our mark in love. And doesn't it seem like that's how it goes so often, that in God's gracious economy, the tables are often turned when we'd never expect and in ways we would never expect. So this way of turning things in unpredictable, unpredictable, surprising manner, all right, let's see, am I on or off now? There you go, she's just gonna, no, I can do it, I promise I can do it, Katrina, I just have to put glasses on, okay. I'm on now, and it's buzzing, so we're good. This way of turning things in unpredictable and unexpected and surprising directions This is kind of a modus operandi for Jesus, isn't it? I mean, Jesus does kind of turn things upside down for us. And uh, I think of the woman at the well, for example, uh, who a Jewish rabbi would never talk to in the middle of the day, but Jesus did. Or think about the rich young ruler who earnestly longs for righteousness. Master, what must I do? And Jesus says, well, go sell everything you've got, rich boy, and then come back and talk to me. And he can't imagine giving up his wealth, as Jesus suggests. And then, of course, the teaching in Matthew 25, where Jesus surprises everyone by saying that what is done to and for him is as if it is done to Jesus. Excuse me, what is done to and for the least, the last, and the lost is as if it is done for Jesus. Even as you have done it to the least of these, you have done it to me, says Jesus. Not one anyone expected, but that's our Jesus. Well, I want to introduce you to someone in the Bible today who also had an unexpected encounter that had changed everything. It was the kind of encounter that turned the tables. Unexpected, unplanned, and friends, certainly Holy Spirit-led. In a moment, I will be reading from Acts 16. So don't change it yet, Katrina. I think I'm going to be okay up here. But let me set the context. Here is Paul, the apostle, but formerly known as Paul the persecutor, right? And he is trying to figure out his next steps on his church planting journey. Hmm, Asia, he thinks. And the Holy Spirit says, Ah, no, Paul. Not Asia, Mm-mm, no, not Asia. And so then the Holy Spirit barred him from entering Asia. Maybe Bithynia, Paul thinks, that sounds good. 
but the Spirit stopped him again. Well, there's always Troas, Paul says. So they went to Troas. And that night, God sent an express message in the form of a vision in the middle of a dream, and Paul finally got it. A man in his dream said to him, come over to Macedonia and help us. Paul got the message, and they headed out. So we'll pick up the biblical narrative from there. We boarded a boat at Troas and sailed straight across the island of Samothrace. Sit straight across the, to the island of Samothrace, and the next day, we landed at Neapolis. From there, we reached Philippi, a major city of that district of Macedonia, and, note this please, a Roman colony. And we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went a little way outside the city to a riverbank where we thought people would be meeting for prayer. And we sat down to speak with some women who had gathered there. One of them was Lydia from Thyatira, a merchant of expensive purple cloth who worshiped God. As she listened to us, the Lord opened her heart and she accepted what Paul was saying. She and her household were baptized and she asked us to be her guests. If you agree that I am a true believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my home. And I love this about Lydia and she urged us until we agreed. Well, Lydia has a lot of sales power, and it worked, I think, pretty well on Paul. So let's get our context quickly. Paul, Timothy, and Luke, who's actually recording the whole story, so his voice is there sometimes and not other times, they are now in Philippi. Philippi is a major Roman colony, and it is busy with commerce, culture, and trade. There is no synagogue in Philippi, and the God-fearing folks meet out at a riverbank, and only women are there. What a great place to plant a church, huh? Kind of like being here at the corner with both Safeway and King Supers. How do you decide where to buy the goodies for church? I don't know. You know, Paul's practice when he would enter a new community, of course, was to go to the synagogue, right? Let's go for, if you will, the low-hanging fruit, the folks who already fear God, who love God. But he got to Philippi and found out so Romanized is this city, there is no synagogue. So Paul checks out, he asks around, he finds out, oh yeah, those religious people, they go out to the riverbank outside of town. That's where they meet. You might find them there on the Sabbath. Paul and Silas head out. And indeed, when they get to the riverbank, they find God-fearing people there, but actually, friends, it is only women. It is only women. We know this from the use of the Greek word gyne. And one of them is Lydia. Lydia, an ex a successful businesswoman. She's a seller of fine purple cloth, and Paul shares Jesus with Lydia. The Holy Spirit moves. And in this beautiful, serendipitous moment, she opens her heart to Jesus. And man, this woman, she goes to work right away. Her whole household is baptized. She is not going to keep this faith to herself. What a fantastic start 
to a church. I'm going to call this a radical reversal, like many of the other radical reversals that Jesus has. I guess I overhydrated because uh, it's coming out. His effort, so I want you to understand this. Paul's effort to go find men in a synagogue turned into a meeting outside of town at a riverbank that led to only women. And that was a beautiful start for a church, a radical reversal. We don't really know the full extent of Lydia's influence on the church or on Paul. We don't know the full extent of Paul's influence on Lydia. But we know that it began in a very powerful way. And she did some pretty big persuading to get Paul, Silas, and Luke to come to her house. You know, scholars believe that the church at Philippi continued to meet in that home not only for months, but for years, possibly decades, and perhaps even for centuries. It is possible that that spot, that home, was the center. Well, a few more powerful and exciting things happen, and you can read Acts chapter 16 for yourself if you want to. A demon-possessed little girl is freed from human trafficking, and in literally an earth-shaking, shattering moment, God frees Paul and Silas from the deepest, darkest dungeon of prison. The Roman officials tell them, get out of town, you two, but they don't do what the Roman officials tell them until they go back to Lydia's house to encourage the believers. And I want to encourage you to think about Lydia and her influence. It was just one life, one simple life impacted by a radical reversal that changed everything for her, for her family, for her household, for the city of Philippi, for Paul, and friends, for you and me. Do you realize Lydia was the first convert in all of Europe? Do you realize the church at Philippi was the first church in all of Europe? And from there, the gospel certainly spread to all points west, to points north. And, you know, we got that Scandinavian thing that eventually made its way across the Atlantic to us. And, of course, we have many other saints besides Lydia to thank. But it began with her. Isn't that powerful? Now, I want to invite you, friends, to think about the radical reversals in your life. This radical reversal, like every radical reversal, contains three important things. And gosh, I hope our, okay, our animation is gone. That's okay. Radical reversals are always centered on a specific time and place. Radical reversals reveal great truth about ourselves, oh, sorry, and about God. And radical reversals, especially in the case of Lydia, lead to great steps of action. Time and place, the busy city of Philippi, the the travel hub, the place of commerce, of culture, the colony of Rome. You know, Philippi was on the Ignatian Way. It was the road from Rome to all points to the east. Everybody came through there. It was targeted by God for a church. The time... God said was right. Took Paul a little while to get to the right place, but when he got there, amazing things happened. And where and when, friends, did your radical reversal take place? For me, it was at a winter retreat. 
I'd been drawn to this crazy group of high school kids who had a lot of fun together, and they did cool stuff, and they had meaningful relationships. I was really drawn to that. But I have to tell you today, I was genuinely afraid to give my life to Jesus Christ. I'd heard the gospel many times, but I was really afraid that the things that had happened in my life, the abuse and the bad things that had gone on in my home of origin, I believed they were my fault. And so I felt like, yeah, what's God going to do if I give my life to him? I'm such a bad person. He probably will throw me over a cliff or something. But it came to a point at a winter retreat as a high schooler when I could not deny the gospel any longer. And I can still feel my heart pounding when I finally stepped up and said yes to Jesus to become his friend. And rather than the condemnation that I feared, I have to tell you that I found a pathway, a pathway to life. I found a pathway to a, a richer more meaningful way to kind of overcome those difficulties. I found a pathway that led me to the scripture, which showed me how to live, and relationships with people that helped develop me as a leader. Wow, this was quite a reversal. And as we said, radical reversals also reveal the truth about ourselves and God. Lydia had a powerful conversion experience that brought new life to her family and her future path for years and years to come. See, I believe God saw her. God knew her. God experienced and knew of her hungry heart out there on the riverbank. And God sent Paul. And in the same way, I believe God saw me. And he saw the struggles I had. He saw the fear and the brokenness that I had from my chaotic and negative home life. He saw my need for friendship, and for challenge, and he came to me. That's what God does, and it is what God wants to do in you and through you, good people here at Centennial. And then steps of action. You know, I've already mentioned how Lydia became very persuasive. Her whole household was baptized. She persuaded Paul and Silas to come to her home and start the church there, much like the woman at the well. Remember that story in John 4 when that woman was at the well and Jesus told her everything that uh, she ever did, things that she hadn't told anyone else, and she immediately went and became the first evangelist in the new world, in the new church. I think Lydia had to have been pretty convincing like that woman at the well, very effective, after all, she was very successful in business, selling purple cloth, and now she applies these skills to church planting and church growth. And I suspect her powers of persuasion were working overtime, but she knew that her conversion had to lead to steps of action. And we are excited to call you to steps of action today, too. But think about that church at Philippi. In fact, I want to encourage you guys, when you get a moment, go back and reread the book of Philippians. And here, in so many places, the tenderness that the Apostle Paul has for those people. Hear his love for them. And it will amaze you to think that it all started with one woman in her home gathering people through the gift of hospitality. 
Well, friends, we have an incredible opportunity today to do the same thing for others. We can join Jesus in joyfully passing on his love to kids in the Democratic Republic of Congo. We can give this same radically reversing love to others in our world, especially those who are hurting and who are among the most vulnerable, especially those who are among the most vulnerable. I suspect you folks here at Centennial Covenant know all about how Jesus preaches and speaks about bringing justice to the poor and those who are marginalized more than almost anything else. The Bible has over 2,000 verses that address how we should treat the poor and advocate for justice for the vulnerable and think about our Jesus, our King. Instead of riding into Jerusalem on a bold stallion, our King rides in on a donkey. Instead of coming with an entourage of servants, Seeing to his every need, Jesus came to serve others, eventually washing the feet of his disciples. Instead of enjoying the amassed wealth of a king, Jesus lived a meager and very humble life with very few possessions, borrowed homes, and he encouraged those who follow him to do the same. In fact, friends, Jesus challenges us to think about virtually everything in this life differently. And you know, one of the things that I love about World Vision is that the way that they stay true to the gospel and to the core values that they hold. And I want to share with you two of those. They are absolutely committed to restoring broken circumstances. I'm going to tell you a little more about the DR Congo in just a moment and like many places in the developing world. Whoo, there is so much that is broken and heartbreaking. And this is an opportunity to do something that really, truly, actually makes a difference for specific people in a specific part of the world. And that World Vision also puts into practice this belief that we should affirm the inherent dignity of every person, meaning let's just see people the way God sees people. This is so powerful because of our blessings and our resources we have the opportunity today and throughout the future to do something that really will make a difference, a huge difference. Because see, when we see people as God sees them, we suddenly realize nobody is unimportant. No one should be overlooked. And we learn that just because people have less, it doesn't mean that they are less. When God looks at the children in Gemina, the, the Democratic Republic of Congo, God says, oh, these precious little ones, I love them so much. They bear my image. They have my identity embedded within them. And I think God would say to us and is saying to us today, beloved people of the Lord Jesus Christ here at Centennial Covenant, Please join me in affirming the dignity of these children. Help me lift them. Help me provide for them what they need. Help me restore the broken circumstances. Today, God is calling us to use our resources and our blessings to get involved, to take action like Lydia did and like that woman at the well did. God is calling us to actually restore, maybe 
for just one child. But we have seen today how one life can make a huge difference, have we not? Your simple decision can bring a radical reversal for a child. Now, it may be tempting to think, well, I don't really need to get involved. I mean, plenty of other people at this great church are going to step up and do it. But I want to encourage each and every one of you to say yes to helping build the radically reversing kingdom of God. And you all know what happens when we do that. Yes, communities are transformed. Kids are helped. Good things happen over in Congo. But we also know that we are changed when we step up and obey God and do what he's calling us to do. So I want to tell you just a little bit more about our sponsored child. When this program began, Scott and I immediately sponsored a child. Her name is Justine, and she is part of a very large and loving family in the community of Gamina. This is Justine when we first met her, or I should say sponsored her, in the fall of 2012. She was only four years old. She looks more like she's two, doesn't she? Having experienced malnourishment. And you can see that things are a little bit rough for her. Now, culturally, kids in Congo don't always smile for photos, so don't worry about that. But you can see her clothes are tattered and dirty. Her nose is actually running in the photo. You can't see, kind of like me. I guess we are bonded in that. And she could really use a sponsor is the reality here. And although we had known Justine okay, through the occasional photographs and the letters back and forth, things really changed when I was able to go to Congo in 2014, two years later. I did see the strength of Justine's family and their incredible resourcefulness. And I want to show you this picture of Justine's family. Now, that is with my husband, Scott. The family keeps growing. But then because of mortality in that community, they've actually lost two of their children. And uh, this is her beautiful family the last time Scott was able to go to Congo. I saw that though they were very, very poor in terms of material goods, they were rich in love and rich in faith and rich in community. When I visited Justine's home, I brought gifts for the family, a lot of gifts, because that is my love language. Too many gifts, if you ask me. But the World Vision people said, oh, what the heck, take everything. And as we sat in that darkened home made of mud bricks and a thatched roof, I was embarrassed, to be honest. I was embarrassed by all this stuff that I bought, T-shirts and toys and flip-flops, and I cringed at the ease with which I had purchased these things back in Chicago. I cringed at the newness and shininess of every item because it stood in such stark contrast to the tattered things that were cherished by Justine and her family. They are resourceful people who live a good life, but who need some help. Well, a quick storm rolled into the visit, during the visit, which often happens, and I saw that the roof of this home was leaking in several places. And actually, this was two siblings, so this was either Henriette or Nguima's, uh, one of their siblings, the mom and the dad. And the two families were living together. I think there were at least 15 people living in this small structure, maybe 12 by 15 or so, maybe a little larger than that. There was no electricity, no running water, of course, no sewer. 
The daughters of the family are tasked, were tasked with gathering water daily. The parents eked out a living, again through their incredible resourcefulness, selling perhaps palm kernel oil or other small provisions by the roadside. Gemina was a community with a very poor economy and very poor jobs. I learned that Justine did not go to school, even as she aged into school age, because she was sick much of the time. Many children in Congo suffer from malaria, as did Justine, a completely preventable disease. And she also had a bacterial disease that weakened her for years and drained her of the typical childhood energy that a little girl should enjoy. And as we walked away from Justine's home that day, I said to my friend Corinne Kakwiti, a leader in the Covenant Church in Congo, Corinne, what will they eat today? And her reply was sharp and quick. They will eat what they can find. I left wishing I could do so much more. Well, I do want to encourage you that this visit was in the very early days of Covenant Kids Congo, and the program was just getting started. I was able to return three years later in 2017, and the changes were incredible. Justine and her family had moved into their own home in the Saza neighborhood just down the road from the new school that was being built and that was about to open. A well had been capped. That's a lot of water in that container. And it was a well just for the Saza neighborhood, just for them. No more long trips to grab water. The girls could be in school. Justine had received the medication and the care she needed and was being visited regularly by her social worker, her World Vision staff member. She was going to school and she was learning. These changes, these radical reversals, friend, if you will, were brought about by the, the work of World Vision, but also by the combined gifts of those of us who give to the program, all of us who sponsor pro children. That community is being transformed. It was transformed. It is still being transformed in ways that are making their mark on women and children and families. And I'm so happy to say to you that this is Justine. Uh, last year, actually, she is even bigger. She just turned 13. And she's healthy and vibrant and strong. She has come a long way. And my husband, Scott, was actually the last person to visit and when he visited in 2019, she actually ran to Scott and embraced him, and he was able to greet her little brother named Scott. And mind you, the baby would have been named Megan had it been a girl. <laughs> and as Scott toured the neighborhood, he held baby Scott on his shoulder the entire time. Baby Scott's probably a toddler now, but I, when I pray for him, I still pray for baby Scott. Centennial Covenant, in the next few moments, you will have the opportunity to join in this incredible way of restoring broken circumstances and affirming the inherent dignity of children in Congo. You know, DR Congo is among the worst places to live in the whole world. It is one of the most fragile countries, the fifth most fragile state. It's a terrible place to be born. It's a terrible place to give birth, although it is getting better. And in spite of the improvements, most people in the DRC live on less than a dollar a day. 
Many families depend on, as I've described, subsistence living, farming, small-scale trading. They live in small mud and brick homes with roofs of tin or thatch. They eat a very limited diet of what they can grow and find and occasionally buy. As my friend Kikwiti said, they will eat what they can find. With your help, we will continue to support children and families in Congo, empowering them to give their children a better future, especially those who are the most vulnerable. And you know, I love the thought of connecting this healthy, wonderful community of Centennial Covenant with a group of people halfway around the world. And trust me, you will feel connected as you exchange those letters and those forms of communication and photos. So today, I am inviting you, each and every one of you, to become a child sponsor, to step up and say yes to sponsoring one of the hundreds of kids in this community who are desperately waiting for a sponsor. I am inviting you to see how your simple gift of $39 a month, and this is a fairly long-term commitment, if you can make it, will restore the circumstances of their lives and affirm their dignity. It is a powerful and meaningful thing. Well, friends, for the last year or so, the people at World Vision have been praying big, bold prayers. How can we do more, Lord God? How can we affirm the dignity of children? And God led them to ask the question, what else could we do to affirm the dignity of these kids from the very first step? What would it look like if for the first time ever the whole thing was reversed and the children were empowered to choose us? you've wondered why this effort is called Chosen. It is because where you would normally go out into the narthex and see a bunch of photos of kids, today you will go out and have your photo taken. And this Wednesday there will be an incredible party at the Bacanzo Covenant Church, which is huge. 
about 700 people or so worship there on a Sunday. And the hope is to see 100 of the most vulnerable kids, many of whom have been waiting for years to be sponsored. 100 or more of those children will be invited to the party of their lives. This will be a party where instead of continuing to wait and wait to be chosen, they are going to walk into the room where your pictures are displayed and they're going to choose you. Then with smiles of hope on their faces, they will be able to make that choice, decide who they want their sponsor to be, and they will actually be invited to write a little letter that will be put into an email for you about why they chose you. <laughs> and I'm sure there'll be some good laughs about that. I wanted an old person. <laughs> she had a goofy smile. Who knows? Or I like that they had children. They will celebrate after this choosing party. They will celebrate in a way that is so powerful and so meaningful. That will happen this Wednesday at the Bacanzo Covenant Church in Gemina in the DR Congo. You will be there. And then amazingly, you will come back here next Sunday and you will be able to pick up your envelopes that show who chose you. Oh boy, that's going to leave a mark.